You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Thank you all for being here this morning. It's good to see everybody. Uh, First, I want to say that, uh, or just want to say how much Audrey and I appreciate all the prayers and support that all of you have offered on our behalf, and we are so grateful for our church family. That's you. Thank you for fulfilling Galatians 6.2, which says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We would not be able to do this alone. And we praise God that we do not have to. So, really appreciate all of you. In so many ways, forgive us when we do not tell you that, for whatever reason. Also, forgive me, I'm having a little trouble with hoarseness here, but we'll try and get through it. All right. The children were lined up in the school cafeteria for lunch. At the head of the table was a large pile of apples accompanied by a note that read, Take only one. God is watching. Farther down the lunch line at the other end of the table was a plate piled high with cookies. Next to it was a note in a child's handwriting, Take all you want. God's watching the apples. (laughs) My kind of kid. Yeah. God is watching. As a general statement, how many of you believe that's true? God is watching. Okay. I hope all of you believe that. And God isn't just watching the apples or the cookies or even both. Hebrews 4.13 says, And there is, there it is, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God sees everything. And this fact is brought home to us personally in Psalm 33, verses 13 through 15. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. God does see everything. And that means that he sees everyone, including me and you. But we might wonder, when God sees us, what does he see? In Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17, the Apostle Paul continues his discussion about why the Jews couldn't rely on their Jewish heritage for their salvation. And while these observations are aimed specifically at the Jewish nation, I think we'll find that the principles that we see here have application to us as well. Today's message is called, What Does God See? We'll start in Romans chapter 2, verse 17. Verses 17 through 24, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he says, But if you bear the name Jew 
and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. And I say here that we see that God sees our hypocrisy. Well, what is a hypocrite? I have a lot of common ideas about that, a lot of popular perceptions, but what is a hypocrite? Now, in the words hypocrite, and hypocrisy are not used in this passage. So you might wonder why I have titled this section, God Sees Our Hypocrisy. But to answer that, let's answer the question, what is a hypocrite? The word itself is actually a word that has been transliterated from Greek. What that means is the sound of each Greek letter is represented by the English letter that has the same sound. Our word is hypocrite. The Greek word is hypocrites. I mean, it's just a sound-for-sound sound substitution. It's a word that is used literally of an actor, someone who presents himself as though he were someone else. The word hypocrite is widely misused today to refer to anyone who does not faultlessly live up to some conviction or stated belief. Is there anyone here who faultlessly lives up to their convictions and beliefs? Faultlessly? Any of us? No. Not me. Not you. That doesn't make us hypocrites. A real hypocrite knowingly misrepresents himself as someone he is not. And that's what Paul addresses here in regard to the Jewish way of thinking. The Jews have been given God's law which included such commands as, you shall not steal, and you shall not commit adultery. As Paul presents his position here, and later in chapters 9 through 11, he says that most Jews had the idea that though the law had been given to them, its requirements did not apply to them in the same way as to other people. They had a false confidence in their Jewish heritage as being sufficient for their own salvation, regardless of whether they obeyed the law or not. In Paul's words, because of their Jewish ancestry and knowledge of God's law, they saw themselves to be a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature. These Jews might have said, oh, we can tell you all about God's law. God gave it to us, you know. We're the experts about what God wants from people. Let us explain it to you, ignorant people, so you can straighten yourselves out. Well, now, technically, those things were true. Should have been. The Jews should have been those kinds of benefit to everybody else. But that's where the hypocrisy starts. The Jewish misunderstanding that the law applied more strictly to others than it did to them led them to do the, do the very things they condemned in others. 
the Jews, these Jews might preach to others, you shall not steal, when they themselves were guilty of stealing in some way. They would teach that God's word says, you shall not commit adultery, but they were guilty of adultery themselves, whether the actual act or of the adultery committed in the heart as spoken of by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and made reference to by Elvin here this morning in opening exercises. And really, the issue of hypocrisy wasn't that they told others not to do what they themselves did. Sounds like that, but it isn't. You can tell someone, God's word says, you shall not steal, even if you have stolen something yourself, as long as you admit that and say, hey, I've done this too, and it's just as wrong for me as it is for you. We're just acknowledging the truth of God's word here. That's not what was taking place. The Jewish problem, according to Paul, was that they not only did the same things they preached against, but they didn't really believe it was wrong for them like it was wrong for those who were not Jews. And that really is hypocrisy. And God sees that, whether in the Jews about whom Paul was writing or in us today, who condemn in others, yet excuse in ourselves what is the very same sin. That's the heart of hypocrisy. Wrong for you, okay for me? Not how it works, right? Now, we might think that the worst consequence of our hypocrisy is that people see through our charade and ridicule us because we aren't who we claim to be. Oh, I've opened myself up to ridicule. That's just a terrible, terrible consequence, isn't it? Hmm. I would say that a far worse consequence of hypocrisy and one that Paul identifies here And it's true, whether for the Jew who claims to be one of God's chosen people, or for the Christian who claims to belong to God through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, a far worse consequence of hypocrisy is that when God's people turn out to be actual hypocrites, God's name and reputation are subject to ridicule. Never mind you, let's talk about God. Let's talk about how what, what you're doing and your hypocrisy reflects on him. And I'm not pointing fingers here. I'm just saying. This is observational, okay? I, I say it this way. We give God a black eye. Ephesians chapter 1 says three times that as Christians, we are to exist to the praise of God's glory or to the praise of the glory of his grace. That was true for the Jews as well. People should look at God's people and be motivated to praise him for his glory and his grace as they see what wonderful things God brings about in the lives of his people. God's people should never be the cause for God's name and reputation to be ridiculed. But if we are actual hypocrites, that's exactly what happens. Let's go on to verse 25. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision, that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew 
who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not for men, but from God. Now, another part of the Jewish heritage in which so many of the Jews placed their confidence was circumcision. God instituted circumcision as a token of the covenant that he made with Abraham, clear back in Genesis chapter 17. God told Abraham there that circumcision would be a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and that any male who was not circumcised would be guilty of breaking the covenant and be cut off from his people. That's pretty clear. The Jews took that statement and they turned it into the inverse. They said, oh, every male who is circumcised is not guilty of breaking the covenant and will not be cut off from his people. That's not what God said, but that's what they turned it into. In verses 25 through 27, Paul refused this false logic by pointing out that circumcision is a guarantee of salvation only if a person also keeps the law perfectly. Not only that, but a person who is not circumcised, say a Gentile, who is never subject to the requirement of circumcision, and who keeps the law perfectly, will be accepted by God ahead of the Jew who is circumcised, but who fails to keep the whole law. Now, Paul is not suggesting that such perfect Gentiles exist. That's not the point. He dismissed that possibility back in chapter 1. But he is saying that circumcision is not the automatic ticket to salvation for the Jews that so many of them thought it was. Under the law, perfect obedience is still the only standard for salvation. And you know, there's something I think we're all guilty of at times. We let our eyes try to provide more information than they really do or should. Here's an example. In 1884, a young man died, and after the funeral, his grieving parents decided to establish a memorial to him. With that in mind, they met with Charles Eliot, president of Harvard University. Eliot received this unpretentious couple. I mean, you look at them, they look like nobody. He received them into his office and asked what he could do. After they expressed their desire to fund a memorial, Eliot impatiently said, well, perhaps you have in mind a scholarship. He didn't have a lot of time for them. We were thinking of something more substantial than that, perhaps a building, the woman replied. In a patronizing tone, Eliot brushed aside the, the idea as being too expensive, and the couple departed. The next year, Eliot learned that this plain pair had gone elsewhere and established a $26 million memorial named the Leland Stanford Junior University, better known today as Stanford University. Yeah. The saying goes, don't judge a book by its cover. Paul might have said, you can't tell a real Jew by his circumcision. We're familiar with this idea in Christianity as well. I mean, you can put the fish on your car, right? <laughs> yeah, you get a whole list. You, probably your list would be longer than mine. Uh, you can put the fish on your car. You can wear the Jesus and me t-shirt. You can carry a 25-pound Bible around and always turn on the Christian radio station. 
Well, the person that does that may, in fact, not actually be a Christian. The external trappings and appearances aren't what make us who we really are. It's who we are inside that counts. You know that. I know that. But we don't always act like that. Paul said that a real Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly, whose heart has been circumcised by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, see, that's just a weird mental picture, okay? So we have to talk about that a little bit. Circumcision of the heart is something spoken of since clear back in Deuteronomy chapter 10. And, and it's different. In the Old Testament, it referred to a person's own turning from sin and surrender to God's will through faith and repentance. And they were, they were called on by God to circumcise their hearts. And it was something they did, and they, they had that own, their own volition there to do that. Paul specifically mentions here that the true Jew is one whose heart has been circumcised by the Holy Spirit. Not, not a self-work here. Repentance and faith are still necessary, but the Holy Spirit does something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And that is, he brings about the rebirth. We've all heard that. Born again. Born again Christians, right? We've all heard that. The Holy Spirit brings about the rebirth that resurrects us from spiritual death back into spiritual life. This is salvation by grace. And though Paul has been talking about the shortcomings of the law in providing salvation, we are so blessed to find this reference to the true source of salvation for all. God's transforming power as brought about in us through his Holy Spirit. And God sees the inner man. And he knows who the true Jew is and who is not. Because God has this perfect insight. He gives praise where praise is due to those whose hearts have been circumcised by the Holy Spirit. This is the best praise for at least two reasons. First, it comes from God, the giver of every perfect, good and perfect gift. And there can be no higher praise than that given by God himself. Second, it is always accurately directed. You and I can be deceived. We might give praise to those who do not legitimately deserve it. God's praise, or excuse me, God will never be deceived. So his praise is always directed to those who do legitimately deserve it. God's praise is not empty words of flattery. God's praise is well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. That's why God's praise is the best praise. Go on to verse or chapter 3, verse 1. Verse 1. <clears throat> Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? 
may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged, or an alternate translation might be, in your judging. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. That's kind of a mouthful. All right, take a piece at a time. Paul has said a lot about why the Jews couldn't rely on their Jewish heritage as a free pass to salvation. If all that history doesn't mean that you're automatically saved, then what good is it? Well, Paul begins to answer that question here, and he will continue to answer it in chapter 9. But the one thing he mentions here, in which being a Jew is an advantage, is that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That word oracles, that's not a word you're going to cross every day. These are the very words of God, the inspired word of God. And at the time Paul was writing the book of Romans, he meant the entire Old Testament, as God had delivered it to his people, the Jews. Why was this an advantage? Well, the Gentiles had a knowledge of God that was based on natural or general revelation. But the Jews had special revelation from God, in which God gave many more details and much more information than could be gleaned from nature. Even the innate knowledge of God that comes to all people by virtue of being created in God's image doesn't supply the depth or detail of information that God entrusted to the Jewish people is in his inspired written word. One big advantage of having God's special revelation was the knowledge that it brought of God's plan to send his Messiah to bring salvation to the world. The Jews ought to have been able to recognize the Messiah when he came and to believe in him and to receive salvation. Now, for most of the Jews, that was only a theoretical advantage because they still didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah when he came. So did God's plan fail? I mean, if he wanted the Jews to be ready to receive Jesus the Messiah when he came, and many, perhaps the vast majority of the Jews, did not receive Jesus when he came, did God's plan fail? Worse, was God proven to be unfaithful somehow because the Jews didn't respond like he wanted them to? Paul answers with an expression that he uses at least ten times in the book of Romans. The New American Standard translates it, may it never be, while the NIV says, not at all. And the English Standard Version renders it, by no means. The New King James says, certainly not. But perhaps we are most familiar with the old King James rendering. You've heard this. I know you have. Maybe you didn't know it came out of Romans or other places that Paul wrote. Old King James renders it, God forbid. You've heard that. Yeah, we're familiar with that. Man's unfaithfulness never negates God's faithfulness. 
Paul says, even if every man is found to be a liar, not much of a stretch there, by the way, even if every man is found to be a liar, that we must recognize that God is perfectly, absolutely, continually true. And that means true in the content of what he speaks and true in his faithfulness, which he never compromises. God never makes a, a promise and backs out. Oh, some of his promises are conditional. He says, if you do this, then I will do this. But God is never false in any way. Verses 6 and 7 contain two means by which the Jews, or humans in general, might try to justify their own unrighteousness and disobedience. We could paraphrase the first one this way. Well, if my unrighteousness and disobedience makes God's perfect righteousness stand out in a dramatic way, isn't that a good thing for him? Shouldn't he be rewarding us instead of condemning us? That's a little like saying, oh, I know I'm a real jerk. That's exactly why you should be friends with me. Because when we hang out together, I'll make you look really good. You want a friend like that? You pick your friends on that basis? No, I don't think so. We don't do God any favors when we increase the contrast between his perfection and our sinfulness. Those who receive God's wrath will do so because they deserve it objectively. There is no amount of spin that will change that. The second excuse is similar. Well, when I lie, God's truth is revealed more clearly, which brings glory to him. So shouldn't he give him, he should be giving me a pass here. I mean, I'm helping him. You might imagine a child saying, well, I know I broke one of the last two dishes you got from grandma, mom, but that ought to just make you treasure the one you have left all the more. Really, you owe me. Is that how that works? No, that's not how that works either. There is no excuse for our sin and disobedience. God sees our unrighteousness for what it really is, and he faithfully responds exactly as he ought to which isn't necessarily as we want him to. And I hope you appreciate that about God. I really do. There's so many times we will, <laughs> there's so many times we want to push God's buttons and, you know, I treat him like the cosmic vending machine and I get, I get what I want out the other side, right? As long as I do, I, I'm just going to get God to do what I want to make God do what I want him to do. You don't want to do that. God knows so much better than you and me. You might get what you think you want, but it may not be at all what you need. Paul goes on to say that excuses like these lead to statements like, let us do evil that good may come. Does anyone here think it works like that? Let us do evil that good may come. Well, I, I hope not. So why would anyone say such a thing? And certainly, why would anyone accuse Paul of saying such a thing. Paul preached the gospel of salvation by grace. Another way of saying that is that salvation is not by works, and we can never earn our salvation in any degree. Some who were not paying attention or who wanted to twist his words might misinterpret that to mean that, well, obedience doesn't matter. I mean, we, we can continue to sin and do whatever we want because God's grace will still save us in Christ. Now, this idea will resurface in chapter 6. 
but the fallacy is plain. Paul says that those who want to twist God's perfect justice into an excuse or license to sin deserve the condemnation they will receive. Don't try to take God's words and make them mean something else. Sometimes they're confusing. Sometimes we don't understand them. But we should always seek to understand his intended meaning, not what we wish it meant. Or not what you know, we think we can spin it to mean. That's never the right course. The question we started with today, the question we started with today is what does God see? And in my opinion, in this passage that we've looked at here, Paul has discussed the way God sees our hypocrisy. You know, many of us struggle with some weakness or failing, but we acknowledge that we're struggling and that those weaknesses and failings are sinful behavior that we need to address in ourselves as much as anyone else would need to address the same weakness or failings. It's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is having those weaknesses and failings, but claiming that they're not really a problem for us. Well, the same thing in other people, same things in other people are terrible and wicked. Remember, God isn't fooled, even if other people are sometimes. God also says, or excuse me, Paul also says that God sees our hearts. We can put on all kinds of outward appearances that look good and that may fool other people into believing that we are right with God. But God knows us through and through. Going through the motions looks good, and it is good. When we do the things God expects and requires of us, but not if we're doing them for the wrong reasons. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God knows whether you have genuinely submitted yourself to Jesus Christ as Lord. If you have not, no amount of outward appearance is going to make any difference. What will make the difference is spiritual rebirth through the working of the Holy Spirit. Finally, Paul says that God sees our unrighteousness. For the Jews, part of their unrighteousness included disregarding God's very word, which had been entrusted to them, and not preparing for or recognizing Jesus Christ as the Messiah when he came to earth. And all of us may try to cover up or rationalize our own sinful behavior. But God sees it for what it really is. God isn't going to redefine our sin as something good just because we think we have a way to spin it to our benefit. You can't do that. Sin is sin. And God sees it that way. God sees our sin as sin. And he knows that it deserves condemnation, even, even if we manage to convince ourselves otherwise. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 139. And the first four verses of Psalm 139 go like this. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. 
Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Now, when it comes to you and me, the question we've asked this morning, what does God see? The answer is everything. And we might theoretically acknowledge that. But what are the practical implications? He sees all your actions. He sees or knows all your thoughts. He knows every word you're going to speak even before you do. And he knows where you stand relative to salvation in Jesus Christ. If you've already made a commitment to follow Jesus, God knows whether that commitment is sincere. And if you have not yet made that commitment to surrender to Jesus as Lord and Savior, God knows that you need to. He wants you to, but it has to be on his terms. Believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, something many of the Jews did not ever do. Believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, God's Son, sent to die on the cross and rise from the dead to take away our sins. Repent of your sin, choosing God's way to live rather than your own. Confess your faith your faith to others, such as those of us here today. And be baptized in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. God will send his Holy Spirit to bring about the circumcision of your heart, causing you to be spiritually reborn in Christ. The baptistry is ready. Are you ready to make that decision today? If so, please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.